running out of time. Uh, does everybody have an outline? Cool. All right. Let me uh, open us with prayer, and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that you have given to us to come together as brothers and sisters through the blood of your Son, Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your law. Pray that you would uh, impress it upon us more deeply. You would show us how beautiful it is, and especially show us how Christ fulfilled it on our behalf. Pray that you would guide this discussion this morning, that you would prepare us for worship, that our time would be glorifying to you and edifying to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, this morning we have three kinds of law. Last week you guys talked about uh, what is the law. You answered that question, what is the law? Next week we'll discuss uh, the three uses of the law. This morning we have three kinds of law. So uh, our question to consider here at the top, uh, did the law of God begin with Moses? And then why or why not? And what are some scriptures that we can turn to to defend our answer? If you were here last week, uh, or you listened to the recording of Johnny's lesson, like I did, you'll, you'll know the answer to that question. Um, he kind of jumped the gun on me there a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, so let's take a look at the outline. We're going we're gonna to do a little bit of review of last week, then we're going to define the three kinds of law, the threefold distinction of the law of God. We'll get some historic definitions, um, or distinctions, excuse me, of the laws of God. So those three, well, they're not always three, some historic understandings of the distinctions of the law of God. We'll look at the Old Testament doctrine of the threefold law, Christ's doctrine of the threefold law, and then the apostolic doctrine of the threefold law. All right, so what is the answer to the question, did the law of God begin with Moses? No. no. Okay, good. Why not? Okay. And what scripture would you point to? to? Okay, good. It's one of the ones I have written down as well. So uh, let's read that and see if it's defends Paul's answer well. So Genesis 2:17 says, "But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Okay? So Paul, how does that support your answer? Okay? Yeah. So Adam and Eve are given uh or Adam at this point, is given a, a law from God. Don't do this, or you will die. Okay? Anybody else want to defend uh, the answer of no with a scripture passage? Right. Yep. Yep. So Cain uh, commits murder, which is a breaking of God's law, even though the law 
you shall not murder has not been given yet. Okay, so there is uh, some law in the background or behind Moses, and you know, temporally behind Moses in time, um, that Cain has broken. Good. What else? What are some other passages we can turn to? Mm-hmm. Yep. What do we call that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is a command, yes. It's the, the creation mandate, right? Um, so, fruitful, multiply, tend a garden. Yeah, so that's, those are commands given to Adam and Eve before the formal giving of the law. Uh, I also have Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll read those real quick. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. So Paul there, he's not saying that uh, they don't have the law um, in the sense that it's not written on their hearts. He, in fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying they, they weren't given the law the way that the Israelites were given the law formally. But they still have it written on their hearts. So if Gentiles have it written on their hearts, then all people have the law written on their hearts. Uh, so a, a second secondary question to that. So we're saying the law of God did not begin with Moses. Why is it often called the Mosaic Law? Or the law of Moses. Okay? And what? Yeah. Yeah, because the formal giving of the law, the sort of visible, tangible giving of the law, or auditory giving of the law, was given to Moses. But we know the law of God has been written on people's hearts. Johnny also pointed out last week, um, people, people made sacrifices to God before the giving of the sacrificial law, right? So um, the idea of sacrifice um, to expunge sin, that was already sort of in the air, so to speak, uh, before the giving of the law. Okay, so a quick review. What is the law of God? So you can give a, a definition, or you can give a description. Okay, great. So uh, a reflection of God's character. What do you mean when you say it shuts our mouths? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we can't say, "I didn't know." Um, you know, sometimes when, when you have kids uh, or when you were a kid, um, your parents might have had rules that you didn't understand or, or that they didn't explicitly tell you or maybe you didn't remember that they told you. And you do something and you get in trouble for it. You say, well, I didn't know. But that's not the case here, right? Because um, not only has the law been given to us in a visible, tangible form, but it is written on our hearts. Everyone knows the law of God implicitly. Like Paul says in, in Romans 1, we often 
suppress that truth and unrighteousness because we don't want to know God's law because we want to make our own laws. We want to set our own desires up as, um, as the law. But, okay, good. So it's, it's a reflection of God's character. I think that's really good. It shuts our mouths. It makes us uh, to be without excuse, and it leads us to repentance. Why does it lead us to repentance? Yeah, yeah, we have a, we have a standard. And uh, we know that we don't live up to that standard. Um, guys who are in the military, who have been in the military, you know uh, that there's lots of talk about standards. Um, there has to be a standard. You can't have an arbitrary standard that you, uh, you know, get, that, that someone gets in trouble for breaking an arbitrary standard. If it's not written down, you can't really hold them accountable for it. So... We have the standard written down for us and in our hearts uh, and reflected in nature as well. And so we are without excuse. It shows us how we do not live up to that standard and leads us to repentance. Okay, good. So the three kinds of law, this is, um, you know, uh, variously referred to as the threefold law, the tripartite law, just, just a fancier way of saying threefold. Um, I, I gave you the answers, but it is your task to define them. So the three kinds of law in the law of God, moral, ceremonial, and judicial. So for these definitions, I want you to tell me what it is. Maybe give me an example of it. And yeah, we'll, we'll start with that. So define it and give an example. So what is the moral law? Okay, yeah, so something can be legal and immoral. And depending on the political situation, something can be moral and illegal, right? So that's a good distinction. Um, When we talk about the moral law, what are we generally talking about? Or usually talking about? Mm Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. And and what's the kind of the summary of the moral law? Okay. So the two great commandments as a summary of the Ten Commandments. Good. Um, yeah. The definition I have here, which is um, pretty similar to what's been said, it's it, the moral law refers to unchanging principles of righteousness that apply to all mankind. So they're unchanging kind of goes back to what, what Paul said. It's a reflection of God's character. God is unchanging, right? He is um, not malleable. And uh, they are principles of righteousness. Good morning. That also is a reflection of God's character because God is righteous. And they apply to all mankind. So it's not, um, well, the Israelites had to follow the Ten Commandments, but the Babylonians were excused because they weren't part of God's people. They were still required to follow the Ten Commandments. Everyone 
at all times is required to follow the moral law. Okay, good. What about the ceremonial law? What is it? Give me an example of it. And sort of, I'm sorry? Okay, sacrifices. Yes, that was an, an example of the ceremonial law. I'm going to add to this one, what was the purpose of the ceremonial law? Good. So it's a foreshadowing of Christ. So the sacrificial system, right, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, that was a, those were pictures that were pointing us forward, pointing the, the Old Testament Israelites uh, forward to Christ. Shadow is, you know, if you, if you stand in front of a light, your shadow is like you, but it is not you, right? But it's surely, uh, well, no, never mind. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a shadow. The, the ceremonial law was given to Israel, the Old Testament church, and they were uh, ordinances of external worship, right? So this is how you are to worship God. So we had the sacrificial system, we had, um, you know, how the, the tabernacle was to be made, um, the Holy of Holies, all those, all those uh, details um, and, and how they were supposed to worship. But the purpose of them was to point forward to Christ. Um, I'm going to add another question, and I'm going re- to go back to the moral law. Do, are we still required to follow the moral law? Yes. yes. Okay. Are we still required to follow the ceremonial law? Okay, why not? Right. Yeah. Christ um, fulfilled the ceremonial law, and uh, he, Hebrews is great, great on this point, right? Uh, we, we don't need to, to follow the sacrificial system because those sacrifices were only uh, effective because they were pointing forward to Christ. Christ as the sacrifice, uh, sort of the capital S sacrifice. Um, he fulfilled all those shadows, and now we don't need to, that's why we don't need to do them over and over again, right? Okay, what about the judicial law? So, let's see if I can remember all my questions. What is it? What's an example of it? What was the purpose of it? And do we still need to follow it? What was, or what is the judicial law? Yeah, so laws, um, like what kind of laws? Yeah, so these are the things that if you do them, you will die, okay? Uh, So criminal laws, civil justice, um, you know, here I would would include, you know, there's all those those passages about, um, you know, don't don't glean the corners of your fields, right? And, and that was so that the, the sojourner passing through can, can come through and pick. That's part of the judicial law, right? Okay, so what was the purpose of the judicial law? Good order and discipline, right? Everybody needs laws, right? Every society needs law. Uh, Israel's um, ancient theocratic society still needed laws, even though they were God's people, they were uh, under God's rule, uh, they still needed laws. Do we still need to follow the judicial law today? 
General equity. Good. Okay. That's a good, that's a good phrase. What does general equity mean in referring to the judicial law? Okay. Right. So give me an example of uh, general equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the principle behind the law is help people who are in need. So uh, I don't know. I guess I would have to ask William if he gleans the corners of his fields. I'm guessing he does. He's not breaking the the judicial law because again, that law was fulfilled in Christ. But the general equity or the, the principle behind that law still applies to everyone. But the specific judicial laws um, are not binding on us anymore. Okay, so we're going to talk about how certain, um, certain theologians have talked about distinctions in the law. Um, I'll start here with Irenaeus, a uh, very early theologian. He had two distinctions in the law. Um, which seems a little different, but it's, in principle, pretty much the same. His two distinctions were the Ten Commandments, which we would call what? The Decalogue. But which of the three distinctions? The moral law. And then the larger Mosaic legislation. So the former he defined as the the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He said they were natural precepts, which from the beginning he had implanted in mankind. That lines up with what we've been talking about, right? The latter, the larger Mosaic legislation, he said they were laws that were typical. And here he doesn't mean like, oh, it's typical, right? Uh, they were types. What do, we, what do we mean when we talk about types in the Bible? We talk about David being a type of Christ. What do we mean? Yeah, precursor, a foreshadow. Um, David is the shadow, Christ is the substance. So these, these, uh, the, the larger mosaic legislation were typical uh, in the sense that they pointed forward to Christ. So that lines up with what we said about the ceremonial law. They were typical and temporal, I mean, they were bound in time, but pointed to things that are real and eternal, plus other laws instituted by God for Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. That last line, what does that make us think about? Maybe. What was a law? Jesus mentioned one law specifically about that the Lord gave Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. Divorce, right? Okay, good. So that was Irenaeus. Augustine, we know Augustine, right? He also uh, says he has two distinctions. When I read it, you'll probably think like I did that he actually has three distinctions. But. Uh, moral is one, and symbolical is another. Again, a symbol, a type, a foreshadow. But also, this is the third distinction that is not really a distinction, civil regulations that were suitable to the times of the Old Testament but were fulfilled by Christ. So in practice, in, in essence, he has the same three distinctions. So moral, symbolical, which we would call ceremonial, and civil regulations, which we would call judicial. Thomas Aquinas, great... Um, medieval Catholic theologian. Uh, he had three moral, ceremonial, and judicial precepts. John Calvin, uh, same thing, moral, 
ceremonial and judicial laws. The Westminster Confession of Faith, if you want to look at that, it's chapter 19 uh, and paragraphs 2 through 5. Um, well, I mean, 1, one through 7, really. It's, it's of the law of God. 1 through 7 is uh, that whole chapter. But 2 through 5 specifically talk about the distinctions. Um, the second uh, paragraph talks about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The third talks about uh, ceremonial laws containing typical ordinances, partly of worship prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. Uh, and then four, he talks about, uh, excuse me, they talk about sundry, sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. And then the fifth paragraph talks about how the moral law still binds everyone justified as well as unjustified. Okay, that's our historic distinctions uh, of the law of God. Now we're going to look at the Old Testament doctrine of the threefold law. So my first question is, how does Scripture distinguish the Decalogue, which we're calling the moral law, from the book of the law, which is the ceremonial and judicial laws? So Scripture in the Old Testament distinguishes these two things, right? And the second thing is actually two things. So we're still in our threefold distinction here. But how are they different in the Old Testament? I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 22. This is directly after the Ten Commandments. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly. This is Moses speaking to the people. Uh, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So there's something in there that distinguishes the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the moral law from the greater Mosaic legislation. What is it? The Lord spoke them, right? It was God directly spoke the Decalogue. The ceremonial and judicial laws, again, it's, Moses wasn't making it up himself. He wasn't like, oh, this is a good idea. I'll write this down. But it wasn't a direct speaking, right? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Moral Law was a direct speaking. In Exodus chapter 20, in verse 18, again, this is the, the first giving of the law. Um, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And then it goes on. But this shows that the giving of the law, giving of the, the Decalogue, was accompanied by an extraordinary display of God's majesty. The mountain was smoking. The sounds of the trumpet, lightning, like it's, it's a visible display of God's majesty. That didn't happen with the giving of the ceremonial and judicial laws. I think Rick mentioned this next point. God wrote 
the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone by his own power. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't done with the ceremonial and the judicial laws. Also, uh, what, what's another phrase or word that is used to describe the Ten Commandments? Okay, Law of Moses, yes. Here I'm thinking about, um, this is Exodus 34, verse 28. So he, meaning Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments is called the covenant. Not, not so with the ceremonial or judicial laws. Moses was also ordered to keep the tablets, the Ten Commandments, in the ark, uh, which was the reflection of, of God, or the visible sign of God's presence with Israel. And then, as we know, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Moses repeated the Ten Commandments again before Israel entered the land. Okay, so that's how the Old Testament itself speaks about the distinction between the law uh, this question, I, it's in quotes because I wrote it verbatim from uh, Reformed Systematic Theology. Uh, why are the Ten Commandments unique in God's covenantal law? So we see that there is a distinction between the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Law, all those things we just said. Why is there that distinction? Why are the Ten Commandments unique? Why did they come with uh, God's voice and the display of his majesty? Why were they why was Moses told to keep them in the ark? Yeah. It's probably part of it. But the, the Ten Commandments, remember we talked about when we define moral, ceremonial, judicial... Which one of those three is still binding on us? The moral. Which one of those three is written on our hearts? The moral, right? Because the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they express God's nature, His character, as reflected in man, in ourselves, we all know, and in the created order. The Decalogue is linked to the law of nature. They are moral precepts engraved upon the human mind and conscience by the Creator. So that's why there's that, there are those distinctions in the Old Testament. All right, let's talk about Christ's doctrine of the threefold law. So this is uh, how the, the distinction between the law, the distinctions in the law of God are expressed by the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So how does this passage deal with the threefold distinction of the law of God? Yeah. Yeah, the, the moral law is perpetual. Not one, not a jot or a tittle, not an iota, nor a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
he also fulfilled the ceremonial and judicial law. There's a quote here from uh, Johann Wolebius, probably mispronouncing his name, um, Reformed scholar. He said, Christ did not correct an imperfect law, nor did he decree a new one like a second Moses, but he upheld the law against the corruptions of the Pharisees. So you remember the Pharisees were adding law to law. They were adding their own laws uh, to the laws in order to make it easier to keep the the law of God. They added all these laws of men, and uh, they were placing burdens upon the people. But so Jesus came to not to create a new law. He wasn't abolishing the law of God. He was abolishing the law of the Pharisees and bringing out the law of God. All right, Matthew chapter 12. I'm not going to read all those verses because we don't have time. But I will give you uh, highlights. This is uh, Jesus, right? They're, they're walking through the fields on the Sabbath day. Uh, they pluck heads of grain to eat. Pharisees see that and say, whoa, you're breaking the Sabbath. How does the Lord Jesus treat the fourth commandment? This is interesting because uh, they, they accuse him of breaking the fourth commandment. His response is not, the fourth commandment doesn't apply anymore. right? His response is, no, I'm not. You know, so how? What is Jesus saying in his response to the Pharisees? Yeah, yeah. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he's not, he's not abrogating or uh, annulling or canceling the fourth commandment. He's saying, I'm not breaking it. Because the Sabbath, uh, keeping the Sabbath holy is consistent with works of necessity, piety, and mercy. But that's really important. He's, he's not saying the moral law doesn't matter anymore. Or the fourth commandment doesn't matter anymore. It's still binding on us. All right, Matthew 15, 1 and 2, I will read, will read those verses. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And then Jesus says, uh, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Um, so how is Jesus treating the ceremonial law here? Yeah, yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah, he says, you're, you're keeping the, the lesser matters of the law. You're washing your hands, washing the couches, whatever. But you're teaching people to dishonor their father and mother. Um, and he calls them hypocrites. Uh, 
I believe that is a different, um, but yes, it, it might be one of the parallel tellings of the story. But yeah, yeah, so they're, they're caring about outward appearances, but not the heart. Okay, so... Um, Yep. <coughs> right. So the, yeah, there's that that quote from Isaiah, uh, applying that to the Pharisees. Morning. All right, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this passage is related to the judicial law. How is that? How is this passage related to the judicial law? We'll see this more clearly maybe in the next section. But so Jesus is taking um, the the judicial law and applying it in a spiritual way. So we'll see later, uh, Paul will talk about uh, excommunicating people who uh, under the judicial law in the Old Testament would have been executed. So the New Testament, the spiritual reality or spiritual reality to which execution in the Old Testament pointed is excommunication. That's what Christ is doing here. I have a long quote here. I'm going to risk reading it um, because I think it's really good. This is from Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2. It says, In summary, Christ applied the law of Moses to his disciples in a manner revealing a threefold distinction. He took the Ten Commandments and aspects of other laws and gave further revelation concerning their unchanging moral principles. He taught that ceremonial laws did not literally express God's moral law, but were types of spiritual realities, such as inner uncleanness. Lastly, he distinguished the judicial law from the moral law, but drew principles of righteousness and wisdom from it that continue to guide our lives. Christ applied all of the law of Moses to his disciples, but in a manner well described by the distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law. So the the way that Christ taught the law, there was a distinction. Moral law is still binding. Um, We saw that in Matthew 5, we saw it in Matthew 12. The ceremonial law is pointing to uh, inner uncleanness, like uh, Liz was talking about with... um, caring about the outward appearance instead of the inward appearance. And the judicial law is um, the principles of righteousness and wisdom. Okay, the apostolic doctrine of the threefold law. So Ephesians 6, 2, I'm going to read that, and you're going to tell me how Paul here is, um, what he's, how he's discussing the moral law. I'll, I'll read one, in, uh, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So this passage is showing the perpetual binding of the moral law 
on the people of God, even in the New Testament? How does he do that? Yeah, direct quote, right? Honor your father and mother. Saying this is still a requirement for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. So he's applying the moral law directly to people in the church, in the New Testament church. I'm going to flip over to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Is that right? Okay. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is uh, Jeremiah 31, I believe. Is that correct? Um, how is the author of Hebrews discussing the moral law, the, <laughs> the per- perpetual nature of the moral law here? This is a quote from Jeremiah about the law being written on the hearts and minds of God's people. Mm-hmm. Yes? Okay. Yeah, that's great. So um, we'll talk about this more next week with the, the uses of the law. We don't follow the law in order to be justified, but because we are justified, we follow the law. So by your fruit you shall know them, right? There's a quote here from Calvin about this verse. It says, God does not say here, I will give you another law, but I will write my law, that is, the same law, which had formerly been delivered to the fathers. So this is the same law being written on our hearts instead of on tablets of stone. And we already talked about how all people have the law in their consciences already, but this is a, this is a, a promise uh, for the future. All right, ceremonial law. We got Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I'll read those. Can someone turn to 1 Corinthians seven nineteen? And read that in a second. So Colossians two sixteen through seventeen, Paul says, let, "Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." And then Steve, if you'll read First Corinthians. Okay. So, how is Paul, in these two passages, how is he discussing the ceremonial law? Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but... Following God's, the new heart that leads to following God's law. And then in Colossians, he's talking about how the ceremonial law, uh, the food and drink, festival, Sabbath day, those are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
So he's distinguishing between the ceremonial law and our obligation as Christians to God's moral law. And we're not to judge others based on ceremonial laws because they're a shadow of Christ. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says, He has no need, this is like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the Son, who was made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What does this have to say about the ceremonial law? Yeah, yeah. And this, because Christ has fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law, there is an abolition of the law as a carnal commandment. So we, uh, because Christ fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law on our behalf, ultimately we are no longer required to follow it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 13, getting all mixed up here, sorry. This is the, uh, what I was referring to earlier. He says, uh, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to back up to verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God purges those outside. Excuse me, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So what is this? Where is he quoting from in verse 13? I guess that's maybe the easiest way to... If you have a... Bible with cross-references. What is that quote from? Yes, lots of places. Yep. Yeah, so it's from the law, right? It's from the Old Testament law. That purging the evil person from among you, what is... What does that refer to, or what does that mean in the Old Testament? Yeah, banishment, possibly, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pointing to execution, pointing to the death penalty. And how does Paul take that call for execution and apply it to the New Testament church? Excommunication, right? Church discipline, okay? So this is that general equity of the judicial law that we were talking about. God, uh, Paul is saying, um, don't, don't kill this person. 
but put him out of the church so that uh, hopefully by the ministries of the Holy Spirit, he will be recalled back. And then in Acts chapter 2, you guys probably know this passage. I'll read 30 through 35. Being therefore a... Is that right? Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you, are, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. What does um, what Peter is saying here, what, what does that have to say about the judicial law? Okay. Yep. Christ is the judge. Good. What what just happened prior to Peter giving this sermon? Yep. Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What? How does that uh, that act of God? How does that change the judicial law? Okay, yes, that's true. Uh, I'm thinking more um, in the New Testament church, the, the presence of God is not limited to one people or one place, right? It is spread to men from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And so this necessitates a change in how God administers his kingdom. So previously, the presence of God was with uh, Israel, and so the judicial laws were needed for that theocratic uh, system of government. Now, the presence of God is within uh, every believer from every nation. And so, because Christ is enthroned in heaven and his Holy Spirit is poured out among men, there, there is a change in how God administers his kingdom. All right, we have just enough time left for me to read this long but good quote you might be thinking, cool, but why does it matter? Um, this uh, paragraph, I think, says uh, is a good summary of why the threefold distinction of the law matters for us now. Uh, it's not just stuff to know, um, but all of our knowledge of God and his, his ways and his law should lead to uh, worship of him and uh, our sanctification. So I'm going to read this. You can follow along. Again, this is from Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 2. Therefore, we must take a balanced approach to the law of Moses. On the one hand, we must interpret each text in the law with sensitivity to its content, context, and culmination in the New Testament. Any given law may have moral, ceremonial, and judicial dimensions. On the other hand, we must teach the law to our families and churches and do so with a threefold distinction in mind. 
The Ten Commandments are the preeminent summary of the moral law. Therefore, make good use of historical catechisms that build their moral instruction upon the Decalogue, summarized in the two great commandments. So that's the first point, right? Moral law, the Ten Commandments. I like that phrase, the preeminent summary. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, uh, read the Ten Commandments. And they give good practical advice there, too. Teach it to your kids. Teach it to yourself. Teach it to your spouse. Teach it to those around you. And historical catechisms, you guys know if you've looked at the, the latter half of the Westminster Larger Catechism, there are a lot of questions and answers about the Ten Commandments. Okay, second point here. Teach the ceremonial law to point people to Jesus Christ as a glorious reality anticipated by all the shadows. Just because we are not required to fulfill the ceremonial law doesn't mean that we can't study the ceremonial law as revealed in the Old Testament and see how those are pointing forward to Christ. That's a, that's a reflection of God's mercy to the Old Testament saints because he gave them pictures of Christ. And then the third point, as to other regulations, you know, judicial, uh, excuse me, sorry, this is still the ceremonial law. I broke at the wrong point. As to other regulations, recognize their moral dimensions and press it, press it upon people's consciences as Christ did. There they're referring to um, when Christ was talking about uh, washing of hands. The ceremonial law is, is pointing to spiritual reality of uh, inner uncleanness, not outer uncleanness. And then third, when it comes to the judicial dimension exemplified in Israel's criminal and civil case law, receive it not as modern legislation, but as God's wisdom for righteous living in a complex world. Like Paul pointed out, the general equity of the judicial law, uh, those are things that should still inform us of how we should live in this complex world. All right, got a couple minutes, questions, comments? Corrections. Did you connect? I'm just thinking about the, the three um, uses or three kinds. You can also connect someone listening to Christ's threefold office. Mm. I, I did not. Great, thank you. Anybody else? Questions or additions or corrections? All right. Well, can I have somebody close us in prayer as we prepare for worship? Thank you.